0: Welcome to The View from the North Curve A podcast covering all things North Curve Celtic I'm your host Kev Just to say a big thanks again to everybody for tuning in I hope we're all keeping well We're back with you now to continue on as part of a wee series that we've been doing On the 40th anniversary of the 1981 hunger strikes we had a couple of episodes out previously with, where we spoke with Tony O'Hara and we spoke with Tommy McCourt. They were two cracking episodes, cracking lessons. I hope everybody um, enjoyed them. And as I say, we're back with you again to speak with Tommy McKierney. Um, Tommy was born in Lurgan in 1952 and he was brought up in County Tyrone. Tommy's family is steeped in republicanism with both of his grandfathers being members of the IRA during the War of Independence. And Tommy himself became involved in the provisional movement in the 70s where he became a member of the East Tyrone Brigade of which he became officer in command during the mid-70s. He was then arrested in October 1977. He became involved in both the blanket and the dirty protests He took part in the first hunger strike in 1980 where he spent 53 days on the strike. Tommy lost three of his brothers during the war. His brother Sean was killed in 1974. Kevin was murdered by the UVF in 1992 and Podrig, who we remember in the song Log All Matters was killed by the SAS in 1987. Tommy was released from jail in 1993 And he's now a freelance journalist and is an organiser of the Independent Workers' Union of Ireland. So just a big, big thanks to Tommy um, for taking the time to come on and speak with us. So just let Tommy take away. Cheers.
1: Thanks for that very gracious introduction. Uh, I'm trying to give you an overview of background to what happened and the impact of the hunger strike of 1981. The beginning of the 1970s, the latest round of armed conflict began in Ireland, and by 1972, the British government conceded what they described as special category status to IRA prisoners. It actually meant all prisoners convicted of what they deemed to be politically motivated offences were entitled to political, effectively, it was effectively political status, although it was deemed special category status. that was granted in 1972 by, believe it or not, a conservative government at the behest of the then Secretary for State for Northern Ireland, William Whitelaw. Now, there was a certain thinking behind this as well. It wasn't just a magnanimous gesture by the British by any manner means. They wanted to bring the IRA into negotiations, which they did for a brief period of time in mid-1972, which negotiations broke down after about 10 to 12 days. But... uh, Political status or special category status seemed to annoy the British enormously, but particularly by the middle 70s when the the then Labour government under Harold Wilson attempted to negotiate with the IRA and it didn't emerge uh, to come to anything. But probably and obviously because of Britain's imperialist reputation, which precedes it, that the world at large saw what was happening in Ireland as a, another colonial episode. So the British decided then, under the leadership of the British Labour Party, and Marilyn Rees was the Secretary of State that decided to abolish special category status for any IRA prisoner or any prisoner uh, captured after the 1st of March 1976. Uh, this There were several reasons for it. One was that... Uh, it was seen as changing the narrative away from what was seen globally and even within significant sections of the British left as a last one of their last imperial projects, colonial struggle in Ireland. To redesign it as and to redirect the narrative and create the narrative that what was happening in Ireland wasn't a battle for national liberation, but was indeed a criminal terrorist conspiracy run by people for financial gain and profit and to extort money from their neighbours and to intimidate their neighbours. Uh, and that was designed for with uh, that in mind. And also, there was an, a, an attempt to put pressure on the IRA that if they lost political status, if they lost their stature, that it would, it would put a pressure on the organisation to concede ground to the British. So, for anybody sentenced, any was captured and sentenced after the 1st of March 1976, we were to be deemed and treated as criminals. And one of the big things the British wanted was photo opportunities, if you like, where they could show convicted IRA prisoners, as they would have described them with, in criminal uniforms, prison uniforms, doing prison work, obeying prison regulations, effectively showing to the world. And they would have sent their cameras in to do it ruthlessly to show that this was now a, a criminal organization being treated as criminals. So this was something quite obviously the IRA were never going to accept. Republican prisoners were never going to accept or tolerate that status for a number of reasons. One, that to do so would have been to negate the entire cause of, uh, that we were fighting for. It was to concede to the British that we were not a credible organisation with political objectives. And so it would concede to the world as well. But also we were battling for position within Ireland We I couldn't afford to allow our own supporters to be deemed as people who are supporting a, a criminal organisation. Uh, this was resisted, and the first person to resist it was a guy called Kieran Nugent, a Belfast man, and he, on the 14th of September 1976, on sentence, refused to wear prison uniform. And he was then stripped of his clothing, forcibly stripped of his clothing, and put into one of these new cells in what was then, instead of the older compounded accommodation which looked remarkably, from the British point of view, looked remarkably like prison of war camps from the Second World War. They had built new H-blocks where people were to be confined to to a cell where they were to ostensibly do prison work, wear prison uniforms. But Ciarán refused to wear the uniform and famously said that they could nail it to his back, but he certainly wasn't going to put this uniform on. Now, because then he had refused to wear his clothing, uh, he wasn't allowed out of his cell, he wasn't allowed exercise. He, they deemed him to have broken prison rules because he wasn't uh, come he, he, he wasn't conforming to prison regulations, and therefore was confined to cell twenty four hours a day. Now within the following months, there was a a, a large number of IRA prisoners, in fact, towards the end, that there was 350, 400 coming up towards maybe 500 people from the IRA and the INLA, it has to be said, the Irish National Liberation Army, although they were smaller in numbers than the provisional IRA, uh, refusing to conform, refusing to wear the prison uniform and locked in their cells. So what you also have to keep in mind is that the prison officer class was largely made up of Unionists, people from the Orange tradition, who saw the Republican prisoners as their enemy and visited violence, uh, right, frequently on prisoners. And you have to keep in mind that in a prison without, without clothes, prisoners had simply to keep warm, they wrapped themselves in a grey prison blanket, no shoes, uh, no trousers. Just imagine how, how vulnerable A man is without his shoes, never mind, without his, how vulnerably he feels, without his, without a belt, without his trousers, without any clothes, and at most two per two to a cell. So not only were men beaten fairly frequently by ostensibly by, or by prison officers, ostensibly carrying out cell searches. Now, it was debatable what could possibly be in a prison cell that we couldn't get out of the cell we couldn't what contraband could possibly have been there but this was ostensibly the reason for inflicting violence on on prisoners which was frequent and and quite abusive but another thing because the cells had no in-cell sanitation and to simply bodily functions it was important to get uh, it was it was important to get out of the cell. There was a, an old chamber pot in the corner, which was fairly crude, but the ablutions or the to- prison toilets were at the end of the wing, and one had to ask, because we were locked behind this prison door all the 21st day, had to ask permission to get out to the toilet. Now, this was used then as, a, if you like, another an additional piece of torture against prisoners, when prison officers would refuse then to allow men out and this led to a situation where men out, in desperation started to smear Screcia on their cell walls and pour the urine from the chamber pots out under the prison the cell door, which led to what became become known as the hunger, or the dirt prison, the dirty strike or the Nawash's protest. Now what you have to keep in mind is that a huge number of prisoners had been in fact, nearly all of the Republican prisoners had been sentenced before what we call, what we call the diplock courts. Now, Britain is, loves to present itself as the model of democracy and the mother of all parliaments. But a diplock court meant that there was no jury, one judge, and inverted rules of evidence, which meant that a, a statement taken by the police had to be, uh, if it was made by the police, a, a prison, uh, the defendant had to prove that he... Did, did not make the statement voluntarily, which is practically impossible to do. That's inverted, inverted rules of evidence. But much of this evidence had been accumulated as a result of brutal torture in various prison or RUC or interrogation centers. And it's not just simply something that we can't substantiate. The police doctor, a man called Robin, Robert, sorry, Erwin, he said, and this he said and, and stated quite publicly, that he had recorded no less than 150 cases of injuries inflicted on prisoners during police interrogations, and this was covered uh, by both, in, substantiated in both the Bennett report, which was commissioned by the British after Ro- Robert Irwin had went public on BBC television, which was covered by Panorama, surprisingly. So what you were faced with when you think of it was a lot of men who had been sentenced basically on the basis of a either a signed or an unsigned statement with no other forensic evidence, no witness statements, no jury in a court where invariably the judge from the unionist orange tradition invariably accepted a police statement as convincing evidence. So between that, you can, you can begin to imagine how resentful the prisoners were seeing that were being treated in the way they were treated and how they had been treated on arrest, on capture, brutality used. So when they were faced with the situation that uh, they were going to be criminalized as well as brutalized, that inevitably and um, the situation was get, uh, increasingly, the pressure was increasingly building. It was decided by mid 1980 that the last option a prisoner has in these circumstances, is a hunger strike. Now, hunger strike has a long tradition in Ireland. In the beginning of the 20th century, the first person to die in hunger strike, believe it or not, was a member of the uh, IT and GWU, the Irish Transport and General Workers Union, in 1913, during the Great Lockout, led by Jim Larkin and Connolly as well. James Connolly, for uh, the Scottish from Edinburgh, James Connolly, as you know. But all, probably the more, more famous uh, hunger striker to Mounted on hunger strike was uh, Terence McSweedy, the Lord Mayor of Cork, who died in 1920. So it was decided that we had to quite simply break the break the deadlock, break the impasse, and opted for a hunger strike. The first hunger strike took place, and this is one that I participated in in 19, 1980, led by Brendan Hughes, the late Brendan Hughes. Uh, seven of us participated on that, and it lasted 53 days. Now, there was, there's been controversy ever since about the outcome of that because we were led to believe that there was a a compromise and acceptable, a mutually acceptable compromise available. Uh, people talk about documents. There never was going to be a document coming from the British government. It's inconceivable that the British were ever going to give us a document. You could, uh, couldn't possibly imagine a, a document arriving to pay O'Neill from Margaret Thatcher to, to say that you're getting this, that or the other, but it was, it was an unspoken, it had to be at best an unspoken agreement, which, in short order, the British uh, welched on whatever deal there that was available. Now, there was, was five demands, and there five demands that we put forward. The right to not wear prison uniform, that is a big one. The right not to do menial prison work. The right to free association with other prisoners and to organize educational and recreational pursuits, the right to one visit, one letter and one parcel per week, and full restoration of remission of the lost through the protest, because for every day a person had been on protest the lost a day's remission, which was quite significant in terms of being released. Now, we knew that there was some room for manoeuvre on those demands, that it was possible to have uh, an acceptable compromise but there were certain elements of it that we couldn't compromise on. For example, clothing was one for sure. But uh, because of that, the better known hunger strike, the one that's internationally known now began then on the 1st of March, 1981, led by Bobby Sands. And hunger striking is a very unnatural business. It's, 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 it's not a suicide pact. It's not, people don't go on hunger strike wishing to die. It's not like having a terminal illness where you, where you have no option. But this is where, which makes it so awful and terrible. And as the end comes then, uh, f- relatives and friends and supporters have to go through the agony of watching a loved one pass away. And the, the agony of the body and keeping in mind that the 10 men who died in hunger strike were all young men Physically fit, all under 30 years of age. So, uh, he, the human male is at the f- peak of his physical strength and ability in his 20s, middle to late 20s. So, the downside of that is that it, he lasts longer on hunger strike, and it's a fairly difficult position to be in. And as the end draws nigh, the agony increases. the the internal organs start to fail one by one. The body's an incredibly sophisticated piece of equipment. It deals very, very sophisticatedly with its organs. It first takes away the fat, it takes away the muscle, then eventually it works through the the organs from the least vital to the most vital. So eventually the the body is caving in through, through drastic organ failure, quite painful blindness, tremors, hallucinations, uh, uh, headaches Uh, So, uh, until eventually coma and and expiring, and that's what all of the ten would have experienced. So just for the record, the first to die was Bobby Sands, then Francis Hughes, Raymond McCreish. Uh, Raymond McCreish, Patsy O'Hara, Joe McDonald, Martin Horson, Kevin Lynch, Kieran Doherty, Tom McElwee and Michael Devine. Uh, to a certain extent that over the course of that nine-month period, Bobby Sands had been elected to Westminster Parliament as a member for Fermanagh South Tyrone with 30 odd thousand votes. Now if anything indicated that the Irish people regarded IRA prisoners and Bobby Sands in particular as political, not a criminal. That was evidence of it. But what it also meant was that it was seen throughout, across the world that the situation in Ireland was not a criminal conspiracy to, to a certain extent, possibly to a large extent. Bobby's victory in that from throne actually ended Britain's attempt to criminalise the Republican prisoners. But as we can guess with Margaret Thatcher, it wasn't going to be that simple. And it's difficult to say exactly Thatcher's thinking because Thatcher had her priority was to smash the British working class, uh, the organised working class, Ireland was probably second on her list of priorities by a, a long stroke, but she was building up a, a reputation and uh, as this Iron Lady, and for that reason become particularly aggressive and uncompromising. But with the, with the, with the election of Bobby Sands, it meant that the, the strike had, had a, an, an impact globally that Had surprised the British. Now, the point about it was that Thatcher deemed the IRA hunger strike in many ways as the IRA's last card, uh, whether she actually believed that or was using it as a piece of self-justification. But quite obviously, it didn't become the IRA's last card. And it emphasized that if men were willing to die on hunger strike, that they could last longer than a British prime minister. But uh, what has to be kept in mind is the transformation. In, before the hunger strike started, there was an indication that support was quite significant. In 1978, there had been a demonstration in support of political prisoners from Coal Island and County Tyrone to Dungannon and County Tyrone, which was deemed to be which was designed for the 10th anniversary of the first civil rights march in Northern Ireland from Cole Island to Dungannon. But about 10,000 people turned up which is quite significant when you keep in mind that in the six counties of Northern Ireland, there's only about, at that time, there was less than 1.7 million people, about 700,000 of them were from the nationalist Republican community. So it was a significant turnout for that. But certainly, not only did uh, Bobby Sands win a significant victory with the from Anna South Tyrone constituency when he won that election. But national support then started to co- into, creep into the South as well. In June, Ciarán Doherty from Belfast was elected to the Dáil, along with another H-block prisoner, Paddy Agnew from Dundalk. Ciarán Doherty won the Monaghan Cavan seat for, for the, as in Southern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Paddy Agnew won in the Louth constituency, both border constituencies. But there were also other significant... Performances by other prisoners, hunger strike prisoners, H-block prisoners standing in the Republic of Ireland, which started to concern and worry the Dublin regime as well. They become very, very nervous about the growing support for the IRA. Now, by the 20th of August, uh, Owen Caron, who was Bobby Sands' campaign manager, he was elected at a by-election to replace Bobby. The by-election obviously caused by the death of Bobby. Bobby Sands and Owen Cairn reinforced the position by winning it. And what that was doing was taking that seat into Republican hands. It was, it, it was demonstrating that not only did unionism not have a chance in it, but the SDLP, the so-called moderate wing of the of the nationalist community, the favourites of the British and Irish Dublin government establishment, had been sidelined by Republican prisoners standing for election. Significantly, there was very powerful international support for the hunger strikes in Europe. There were widespread protests after Bobby's death. 5,000, bear mind, 5,000 students in Milan burned the Union Jack flag during a protest march. The British consulate in Ghent was raided. Thousands marched in Paris behind huge portraits of Bobby with chants of IRA will conquer. In the Portuguese parliament, the opposition stood for a minute's silence for Bobby. In Oslo, demonstrators threw tomatoes at the Queen, and in the Soviet Union, Pravda described it as another tragic page in the grim chronicle of oppression, discrimination, terror, and violence visited by the British in Ireland. And in French towns, there was streets named after Bobby, including streets in Nantes, Saint-Étienne, Le Mans, and Uh, Saint-Denis. Cubans made sympathetic reports. In Asia, The newly established Iranian Republic, Islamic Republic in Iran, sent a message of condolence to the Sands family. Palestinian prisoners sent messages, covert messages, smuggled out of their prison and reached Belfast. And in India, the Hindustan Times said Thatcher had allowed a fellow member of parliament to die of starvation, an incident which had never before occurred in a civilized country. And in India, the opposition stood again, as, as similar to Portugal, they stood for a minute, silence and tribute. And in India, protest marches were organized against the British government. Now, what you're seeing there actually is the old empire starting, the, the, Britain's imperial past catching up with it, where it had devastated India as well. And even in Hong Kong, which was a British colony at the time. The Hong Kong standard said, sad that successive British governments had failed to end the last of Europe's so religious, religious war. But even in the United States, a, a, a pop group at the time, which possibly, I think, maybe has passed into history now, but the Grateful Dead dedicated one of their songs, He's Gone to Bobby. And Castro himself said, let tyrants tremble before men who were capable of dying for their ideals after 50, 60 days in hunger strike. And as time... the world community to put an end to this repulsive atrocity through denunciation and pressure. And in South Africa, Nelson Mandela's calendar for the 5th of May, 81 read, IRA martyr Bobby Sands dies. So that gives you an idea of the impact across the globe, but what it certainly did was that what you would call the anti-imperialist movement, the anti-imperialist constituency across the globe from South Africa, even to the United States, but certainly in the Middle East, in the Far East, Uh, in India, the old colonies, the old empire was starting to identify what was happening in Ireland, not as a religious conspiracy or a a criminal conspiracy, but classically as as a colonial battle for, for independence. So by October of 82, Assembly elections, 78 seats in the Northern Ireland Assembly, the first to be contested by Sinn Féin, which won 10 plus, 10 plus percentage of the votes, which indicated that there was a transformation in the, in the electoral climate in the six counties. And uh, it was because of this that uh, the Social Democratic and Labour Party, the SDLP, are known colloquially to us in the Northern, in the Northern part of Ireland as the Stoops, the Stoop Down Low Party began to lose their purchase on that community and to be seen to be the sole spokesperson for uh, the non-unionist community in the six counties. It also forced the British to sign what became known as the Anglo-Irish Agreement of November 18, 1985. But uh, there was also one of the impacts of it was that it also led to the loss in 1983, of the seat in West Belfast, held for years by the SDLP to Gerry Adams. And with that series of electoral successes for the Sinn Féin party, it undermined certainly the SDLP position. It undermined the British claim that the the IRA had no support. Uh, So the situation was dramatically transformed. Now, we can argue over how it emerged after that, but I think that was an impact that was massive in its in its outworking as a result of the 10 men dying on hunger strike in 1981 over a nine-month period.
0: What I've got now, Tommy, is a few questions that I'm going to fire across to you that have came from the boys and girls within our block. First up, I've got, ultimately, do you think it was inevitable, Tommy, that, the move to the negotiations would come from both sides because of the hunger strikes, or do you think that that would have, you know, eventually happened anyway?
1: I I think it facilitated both sides. The British at that stage began to realise, make calculations, I think we've got to keep in mind that when you're dealing with the British government or a state such as Britain, that what their parliamentarians say in the House of Commons is not always what their thinking is with their advisors and the, and the people that, that, that are working behind the scenes. The calculations being made by their political advisors, by their intelligence uh, secure, their intelligence agencies. So it become quite obvious to the British that there, there wasn't an easy solution. There wasn't going to be an easy win for Britain in the six counties of Northern Ireland. And not only that, but there was a distinct possibility that what was happening in the north could destabilise the south and it was a serious situation from a British point of view. They were also looking at the underlying demographics, the situation in the six counties which was not going favourably towards the British position. So they had to take certain make certain calculations that led them to agreeing in the, towards the end of the 80s, that they would seek to bring the IRA into some form of negotiations. Now there was all sorts of manoeuvres and working and behind the scenes to do that. But it's, it's obvious that had they, had they thought they could achieve victory in the six counties, they certainly would never have allowed... Uh, the likes of Adams or McGuinness to appear uh, for photo ops coming out of 10 Downing Street for all the talk about it. On the other hand uh, from the IRA leadership's point of view they saw now there's there's different points of view or takes or understandings or insights into this but they saw that that here was an opportunity to, to negotiate, to meet the British, that uh, the British were assuring them that, the, that they could participate in in the electoral process, that the situation would change. And at that particular point in time, the IRA leadership was facing a possibility of another 20, 25 years of conflict or negotiations. So it, it, the two, if you like, came into tandem or into Alignment at the same time, uh, and concessions were made to the Republican position. Maybe not, certainly, it didn't lead to a British withdrawal. But to an extent, I think we've got to be realistic about these things. We don't know whether the British have decided to withdraw or not because. It, they might well have decided to withdraw it. The, the, the clock is running down. We're now looking at a situation in the six counties where it's becoming increasingly evident that the partition of the island is not going to last for many more decades. So when did British, Britain take the decision to go? Uh, that's uh, that's something that we'll know maybe, I'll not be about, but maybe somebody in 50 years will be talking to you, yes, that was one of the seminal events.
0: How did you... Come to be involved with the Republican movement. Was it through, you know, the influence of older family members Tommy me, or was it because of, you know, what you'd maybe seen? Yeah.
1: Well, ultimately, it is the circumstances of the day that brought me into the Republican movement. Now, it was facilitated or made easier. The the court, the path was smoothed by our history and my family history. It wasn't out of the question. It wasn't something that was. Inconceivable for someone that had both my grandfathers been part of the Republican movement, the IRA in the nineteen twenties, uh, and the, the there's a tradition in Ireland, a long tradition through our with our tragic history of, of insurrection, armed insurrection. It's 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 not unusual, but having said that, it was the conditions of the time, and to a certain extent, some if you like. Um, personal circumstances i was 18 going on 19 years of age i was single i didn't have to concern myself about a wife or a, fa- or a partner or a children i had no uh, i was i was working as a system of father in a butcher shop so sort of an apprentice butcher i, had, I didn't have a glittering career so i suppose you could say it was easy the decision was easy but certainly it was the circumstances of the time when a, a particularly the circumstances around internment. Internment was introduced, uh, if you can, when you think of it, really through the, the British government in London and the old concept of the civil rights movement had been to, if you like, short circuit, the local government and storm out by appealing to the central government in London in much the same way that the American civil rights movement had went uh, over the head of the states Government to the federal government. Now we can argue or talk about how much progress the U.S. civil rights movement has made. But once the British, the central sovereign government in London, introduced internment without trial, it effectively meant that there was no domestic recourse. There was no democratic recourse to reform, and that would have been a big influence on me as well. And the the incidents surrounding internment without trial, which was was one-sided, it was. Directed against one community with incredible bu- brutality. We're seeing now the inquests into the Ballymurphy 10 and others, such as that, where innocent civilians shot dead by the British Army in Ballymurphy just to reinforce internment. So, uh, but it's circumstances. That short answer is cer- local circumstances facilitated, I suppose, are path smooth by history.
0: Do you think that deep down the unionists in the north now see that partition is coming to an end? and? Do you think that you'll then see a violent response for the unionists, like a sort of kind of last stand type thing?
1: Uh, it's a difficult question to answer because the unionist community is not a monolith. And this is what really is annoying and frightening and worrying the unionist community. Uh, possibly up to 20% of the unionist, the older unionist, what used to be always unionist community, is. Clearly now voting for what we call the Alliance Party, which is it claims to be agnostic on the on the on the constitutional question. Although I would say if they're given their opportunity, they would vote for the union. But if it, if there's a vote against the union, they'll they'll accept it. I think that's the thing. So, but then after that, you're probably talking about. Uh, it's difficult to know. There'll be, if you like, the extreme element of unionism, and the disappointing and distressing part of this is that for the most part, it's working class, unemployed, working class unionist people who will be abused and misused and misled into doing that, but uh, to, to, to try and fight or contest any change in the constitutional issue. But there is a realization in the six counties of Northern Ireland that the demographics are changing inexorably, that the British state no longer has any real interest in remaining in Ireland. We've seen that with George Osborne's piece in the Evening Herald or Standard, whichever that long paper is. Max Hastings, an old militarist editor of the Daily Telegraph, disparagingly talks of 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 unionism. Uh, You're seeing that Dominic Cummings, who's sadly now gone from advising Bojo Dominic Cummins was contemptuous of it. That there is no constituency left. Plus the fact that the, the, what happened a century ago when Britain was an empire, the most powerful, still the world's primary prim, principle superpower, Northern Ireland, Ireland was a, a essential strategic asset in defending the empire's western flanks. Nowadays, what defends the British uh, island London, and it's 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 not even it's not even the Royal Navy, it's the US Navy. Their nuclear option, which they have up there in your country, it's a it's a vanity project. Because it's the axle to call whether there's a nuclear strike or not, and if somebody threatens, if 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 some other part threatens to nuke, Britain, it's 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 the White House that's going to respond. Uh, A deepwater port in Derry or Belfast is of little relevance now when you're talking about submarines that lie under the ocean for uh, nuclear arms, subs that lie under the ocean for years and things like that. So we're we're strategically irrelevant for a a declining power in the world. And while there's bombastic utterances comes from Tory MPs and backbenchers and Labour MPs for that matter in the House of Commons, People that call the shots, the guys that are working in British intelligence, the people that the deep state, they know the cause because they have to know the situation. And they're saying, what would we do? The sad reality of this is that the British, the deep state, would much prefer to engage with Dublin than they would with Belfast. And that's what they want to protect. They want to protect stability in Dublin rather than Belfast.
0: Was there any crossover? Between the strikes of eighty and eighty one with regards to anyone waiting to get on to the strikes, obviously there was seven of you went on at the one time, but was there anyone waiting to take part that then went on to the eighty one strike? Was a you know, information and stuff like that passed? Uh the,
1: before the nineteen eighty, the very first hunger strike started in nineteen eighty. Uh, the IRA leadership in the prison had asked quietly for volunteers for the hunger strike. So there was a list of names, not just the seven of us that embarked on it. There was a list of names, and someone actually came on towards the end of our hunger strike. So there, there was that list of names, some of whom would have obviously been, avail- uh, would have went or engaged on the second hunger strike, the big, uh, best known hunger strike led by Bobby Sands. Now, probably by the time there there was a certain amount of information exchanged, but keeping in mind that after 53 days in hunger strike, it was maybe, it was well into the February of the next year before most of the seven of us were fit to really, had really recovered from what had happened and we were dispersed among the three or four, sorry, three H blocks where the blanket protest was taking place. Uh, There would have been... Conversations, but very often, whenever someone went on hunger strike the second time round, keep in mind that those hunger strike was staggered, it didn't all go on, men didn't start on this on the same time. Bobby started one day, and after I can't remember how long, but it might have been two or three weeks into his hunger strike before Frank would have joined him, and then so on, and so forth. That's why it lasted nine months. But uh, yes, there was, there was some conversations, but I don't
0: know if we imparted any very valuable information. You spoke there about the Dipwalk courts and the occupied six and I've got a wee question here that says did the, the the southern state use the Dipwalk courts at the time as you now hear, you know, about Republicans being jailed today using the Dipwak courts?
1: Yes. South of the border they used not what was called a diplo court, but a special this called it the special criminal court. Dipl- Court was named after a High Court judge, Lord Diplock, who had started his career with British intelligence. But south of he he drew up a report which recommended these new courts in northern in Northern Ireland, one 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 judge, no jury, and inverted rules of evidence. But south of the border, they built based on what's known as the 1939 Offences Against the State Act. And... Actually, south of the border, there's been as much repressive legislation since the state was founded as there has ever been in the six counties. And in many ways, it was only at the outbreak of the Troubles in the 1970s that the southern, the Northern Irish state caught up in terms of death and destruction visited on Republicans that had been visited down south. When You consider the Civil War and the different executions during the 1940s. But the special criminal court set up, uh, it was amendments to the Offences Against the State Act, particularly one—the last one or one of the relevant one for the Northern members—was in 1972, and there was this brought in what they call the special criminal court. So there was three judges, no jury, and this allowed, particularly, it allowed for a Garda officer of at least superintendents, the rank of superintendent, to give us opinion that a certain defendant or person charged was a member of the IRA, and that allowed the court to act on the guard of uh, superintendents' word, that this person was a member of the IRA and therefore sentenced them up to five, I think five or seven years. Now, interestingly, that piece of legislation has been renewed every year since, and amazingly, this year, within the last few days, it has been renewed and Sinn Fein withdrew all its TDs from the Dáil, did not vote against it, which is quite astonishing, since the Special Criminal Court and the Offences Against the State Act nineteen oh, it's nineteen seventy two variety was introduced specifically to deal with Sinn Fein.
0: Tommy, you've been involved in the movement since internment began, and you know, still involved some fifty years later. Uh, do you believe that socialism or Internationalism is more popular amongst Republicans just now, or was that just as prevalent during the war type thing?
1: Uh, it's very difficult to say. I think we we these things are there's actually uh, stages where it becomes the what becomes relevant at a particular time, and as the end of partition comes into sight, at one stage it was the priority was. Saying, to end partition. Although, from the foundation almost of the provisional IRA that declared for quite early on, in spite of allegations that there were, it was a right wing organization that declared for a democratic socialist republic from early on. But I'm not sure, to be quite honest, that from early on there was a great grasp of what that meant. There was, a, if you like, a sentimental or an emotional attachment to socialism without any great understanding of scientific socialism. And as time went by, that uh, began to become crystallized uh, their, their idea. Now there's been differences of opinions within the Republican family over the years of to what extent we can press forward on a social and economic program. But as the situation moves forward, I think it's becoming more evident that there is there's always, there has always been a left-wing within the people's movement in Ireland. There's always been a left-wing, and that's why we've had crushing civil wars to, to stop the emergence of a, of a left-wing in, in Ireland in the 1920s. Uh, There's been a lot of work done by the establishment, the deep state, north, south, and from Britain to prevent this. But with the ending of partition emerging, the question of what type of a new Ireland is going to emerge- It's it then becomes Then becomes particularly relevant. And it's at that stage then that we, I think, we want to move into seeing the real emergence of a left-wing Republican constituency. And I think this is where there's so much fear in uh, establishment circles, because we have on um, a silent reputation for at least being willing to take on the state.
0: Tommy, so, just to wrap up and say a big, big thanks again, mate, for taking the time. To come on and speak with us It's been an honour And a privilege to hear you talk And I hope that everybody tuning in Big thanks to you guys as well I hope you have all enjoyed that we listen And hopefully it won't be too much longer Until we're back with you So aye, cheers guys
1: Thank you for having me Thanks for listening